I wonder, do you ever watch the television programme, Would I Lie to You? Uh, if you do, you'll know that uh, a member of one team makes a claim about themselves and the other team has to decide whether the claim is true or whether the claim is a lie. And if it's a lie, then the person telling it will do their best to deceive the other team into thinking it's true. And if it is true, then they'll do their best to deceive them into thinking that it must be a lie. And of course, the, the statements that are made uh, on that programme are of no significance, uh, no importance. In fact, in the main, the object is to make them as ridiculous as, as possible. Um, because the whole thing is no more than a bit of light-hearted entertainment. <coughs> but as we've been looking at James's letter in, in recent weeks, it's been very evident, hasn't it, that James uh, is also very concerned about truth. Um, not the truthfulness of, of trivia, rather uh, he's concerned about authenticity and genuineness in connection with claims that really matter. He's concerned about authenticity and genuineness in connection with uh, the lives of those who profess to be believers in Christ. He's concerned that they should neither uh, be deceived nor be uh, deceiving anybody else. Um, that word deceived has come up a lot in James's letter. In chapter 1 verse 16 he said, do not be deceived my beloved brothers. He didn't want his brothers to be deceived. In, in chapter 122 he said, but be doers of the word and not here as only deceiving yourselves. If you hear the word but don't do it, then you're deceiving yourself. And he was concerned that they should not do that. Um, true hearing results in appropriate action. If it doesn't, then you're, you're deceived, deceiving yourself and uh, attempting to deceive others. And then in chapter 1, verse uh, 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, he talks about deceiving the heart. True religion, he says, will result in self-control, acts of love and kindness and personal purity. If it doesn't, it's worthless and you are deceived. Now, for there to be genuine hearing of the word and uh, pure and undefiled religion, as James has described, there must be genuine faith. Because faith is at the very heart of the Christian life. So as we come to look at uh, chapter 2, 14 to 26, we find that in some ways he reaches something of a, a climax here by turning his attention to a consideration of faith. He continues to be preoccupied with, with genuineness and authenticity. So in those verses he gives us some examples of spurious faith and he gives us some examples of authentic faith so firstly let's consider his examples of spurious faith 
And the first example that we see uh, is faith that is in word only. That's in verses 14 to 17. He begins that section by posing the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, clearly, that's intended to be a rhetorical question. The answer he's expecting is none whatsoever. He's expecting that genuine faith should result in something good. And what's the good that he expects to result from genuine faith? Well, he makes that clear by going on to pose, a, if you like, a supplementary rhetorical question. He says, can that faith save him? Now, that word translated as save, it can mean to, to, to rescue from, from physical danger, but most frequently in the New Testament, it refers to spiritual salvation. I think that's clearly the case in this context, because back in uh, verses 12 and 13, he was talking about the judgment. And then in verses 22 and 24, he's going to talk about justification. So his expectation is that genuine faith makes a person right with God and so brings about salvation from sin and the consequences of sin. Genuine faith is saving faith. Through faith, the believer is delivered from judgment and made right with God. And that's exactly what we were seeing this morning, wasn't it? When we were looking at Ephesians 2, um, verse 6, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, or the grace of God, as Paul pointed out this morning. You see, our salvation comes to us by God's grace through our faith, and even our exercising of faith is not our own doing, because that faith is the gift of God. It's, it's the gift of God that allows us to lay hold on his grace. So genuine faith, faith that saves, is given by God. Now notice that James's supplementary question there wasn't, can faith save him? James was in no doubt that genuine, God-given faith saves. His question was, can that faith save him? Or some translations put it as, uh, can such faith save him? It's referring to the faith of someone who merely says he has faith, but does not have works. It's faith that is in word only. It's the claim to have saving faith when the evidence of genuine saving faith is completely absent. And so the claim amounts to nothing more than empty words. And then he goes on to illustrate such an empty claim in verses uh, 15 uh, and 16 by posing uh, another question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, again, you have that word, says. 
talking about someone who says he has faith, and now he's talking about someone who, who says, uh, says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, etc. Someone on seeing a brother or sister in need says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. They sound caring. They give the impression of being concerned for their welfare. They make the right noises. But if they don't follow through by providing for their needy brothers, uh, what they say counts for nothing. It's caring in word only. Genuine care and concern would lead to action. So their claim to be concerned is not genuine. As the saying goes, they've talked the talk, but they've not walked the walk. And James says, what good is that? And of course the answer is no good at all. And so he goes on to to hammer home the point of his illustration by saying in verse 17, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. You see that faith that's in word only, faith that doesn't follow through with works, is not real saving faith. The point is that genuine, God-given saving faith results in works. Such works are the evidence or the proof of the faith that's claimed. Now I was going to say that works are the hallmark of, uh, of true faith in that uh, it demonstrates its genuineness in the way that a hallmark certifies and confirms the genuineness of a, a precious metal but then it struck me that a hallmark probably is a fairly inadequate uh, illustration because metal is inanimate after all James says that such spurious faith is dead it's inanimate, if you like it's the the spurious faith that's like a lump of metal Uh, the fact is that spurious faith being dead uh, clearly gives the implication that that, that the strong suggestion that genuine faith, far from being dead, it's living it's productive so perhaps it's better to think in terms of, of works as being the fruit of true faith that demonstrates that that faith is not dead but alive so the first example of spurious faith is faith that's in word only such faith is not saving faith the next example of spurious faith is faith that is seen as optional and that's in verse 18 where James says but someone will say you have faith, and I have works. And the idea here seems to be that someone is putting forward the suggestion that some believers have faith and others have works. Some people uh, are are characterised by faith, some people are characterised by Works. So faith and works are, are really being seen uh, as two separate options. And perhaps what, what was in mind uh, here was the, the, the teaching that members of the body of Christ have received various gifts for building up the body. 
That's what Paul teaches. So so far, so good. And it so happens that one of those gifts is described as being the gift of faith. While some of the other gifts could be seen, uh, considered more to be works of one sort or another. So the suggestion was that well, faith isn't really essential. If you have the gift of faith, that's great. But if you don't, well, don't worry so long as you've got another gift instead. Now, I don't have time now to think about what's meant by the gift of faith in in that context. But clearly, it isn't the saving faith uh, that James is is talking about here. Uh, Because saving faith is needed in order to be a member of the body of Christ that receives the various gifts. So we can dismiss this notion that there is this kind of separation between faith and works. There's nothing optional about saving faith. Um, James goes on to give his reply to the suggestion and makes it clear that there's no separation between saving faith and works, where he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As is already argued, works are the evidence of genuine saving faith. Genuine faith and works go hand in hand. They're not alternatives. They're not different options. Faith that's separate from works is not saving faith. Next example of of spurious faith that uh, Paul gives us in verses 19 and 20, faith that is merely intellectual assent. Begins verse 19 by saying, you believe that God is one. He's addressing someone who subscribes to the notion that God is one. And that's a sound, fundamental, biblical truth. So James says, you do well. Pat on the back. Tick in the orthodoxy box. But you know, when you look at how he continues, you find that in saying you do well, he was actually being quite ironic No doubt this person on hearing James say, you do well, they were feeling quite uh, quite chuffed with themselves. The the seal of approval. James approves. I'm okay. But then you see how he, he follows on. He goes on to say, even the demons believe. So he's saying, you may think that you do well, but even the demons do that. You're doing no more than God's greatest, most evil enemies. What what a put down. What what a, a slap in the face. He's saying that in believing that God is one, you're doing no more than God's most strident and evil enemies. Now clearly, the demons in believing that God is one, I mean that that wasn't a false belief. They, they weren't mistaken in, in believing that, uh, that they really did believe it. They really did know it to be true. Um, because you see that the demons don't question that God is one. They really believe it and knowing it makes them shudder. 
you know, they wouldn't shudder at the thoughts if they didn't really believe it. They, they, they know. They know what God is like. They shudder at the thought. They're terrified because they understand all too well the implications of the truth that God is one. He's the one almighty God who will eventually bring about their doom. Now, that's why they shudder. The, the, the problem isn't that they're, they're believing the wrong thing. It's that they're not responding to that belief in in the right way. So the person that James is addressing could have a real belief in biblical truth. They could have an intellectual grasp of it, know about God, know about God's word. But that alone won't deliver them from judgment or make them right with God. It's only genuine, God-given, saving faith that results in works that can do that. Faith that's merely intellectual assent, no matter how true, no matter how sincerely believed it might be, it's another form of spurious faith. It's not saving faith. So throughout these examples of spurious faith, James has been showing that spurious faith is faith without works, and that faith without works is no good. It is dead. It doesn't save. Now in verse 20, he introduces a, a new section by saying, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he's addressing a, a hypothetical foolish person. And the Greek word that's been translated there as foolish, it literally means empty. So he's referring to the sort of person whose faith is in word only or, or merely intellectual. It's empty, has no substance. And he's asking if they want to be shown uh, that his assertion that faith apart from works is useless is true. He's asking, do you want me to give you the evidence? Do you want me to demonstrate it to you? Do you want me to prove it. Now the Greek um, word there that's been translated as useless, uh, that literally means not working or doesn't work. So there is a, a subtle play of works going on there. James, uh, no, subtle play on words. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, not, not a play on works, a play on words. James is saying that faith that has no works doesn't work. That, that's really what he's saying. Whether they want the evidence or not, he's going to go on to give it. Um, he's been emphasising that spurious faith is faith without works and that faith without works is no good, it's dead, it's useless. That's what he's been asserting. And now he's going to demonstrate it by giving some examples of genuine faith and showing that they produce works so let's see his examples of genuine authentic faith and um, you could describe his examples of authentic faith as the patriarch and the prostitute sounds as uh, so it could be the title of a west end musical doesn't it um the 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 patriarch in question of course is abraham the prostitute is, is Rahab, the harlot. Uh, and the first example is specifically that of Abraham offering Isaac. 
have that in verses 21 to 24. James introduces this illustration by saying, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now this is a a classic example of the importance of not taking a verse out of context. As it stands there, James is saying that Abraham was justified by works. Classic example of the importance of not taking a verse out of context. That's the exact opposite of Paul's assertion in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, before you throw up your hands in despair and think that this is a problem that's as impossible to resolve as Brexit, uh, (laughs) there are points that we need to notice. Firstly, just thinking about what Paul said. Um, Paul did not say that one is justified by faith apart from works. He specifically said, apart from works of the law. So it's not by works of any sort at all. No, it's, it's a, apart from, if you like, legal compliance. That's what he's saying. A person is justified by faith apart from legal compliance, apart from obeying, keeping the law. So that's a point we need to note about what Paul said. But then uh, thinking about uh, James's statement, um, we said about the importance of uh, context. So we need to see how James carried on. Uh, in verse 22, he went on to say, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now that helps enormously uh, to clarify what James meant when he said that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. I think three particular points we need to notice, three points of clarification first thing to notice from that is that the works he mentioned were not alone. He's added that faith was active along with his works. The NIV translates it as his faith and his actions were working together. It's what we saw before, wasn't it, about faith and works not being separated. They belong together. True faith leads to true Works, And that's what James is saying here. The works in question were not separate from faith. They flowed from his faith because his faith was active. It wasn't dead faith. It was living and working. Second thing to notice is that the works he mentions were a demonstration of Abraham's faith. Now that might not be obvious from our, our English text which says and faith was completed by his works. Now that could sound as though James was saying that Abraham's faith was deficient in some way, and that his works 
somehow made up for what was, was lacking. But you see, the Greek word that's been translated here as completed, um, Paul used that same word in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, where he said, uh, and this is in the context of Paul uh, and the thorn in the flesh, um, uh, and he, Paul said, but he said to me, that's, that's God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, it's been translated there as made perfect, but it's exactly the same Greek word that, that James has used uh, and has been translated as completed. So, what's Paul saying that God's power was deficient in some way? And that Paul's weakness somehow made up for what was lacking? Well, obviously not. The point is that in the context of our weakness, God's power, which, which is perfect, without limit, God's power is made all the more obvious, all the more conspicuous, all the more apparent. And so likewise, work flowing from faith make that faith evident. They, they, they show it to be real. They show it to be living. So works are a demonstration of true faith. Third thing to notice from these uh, words that James brought in verse uh, 22 is the priority of faith. James goes on to say, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's an exact quotation uh, from Genesis 15 verse 6 and it shows that Abraham was justified simply on the basis that he believed what the Lord had promised him that's faith that's faith laying hold on what God has promised the point here is that the Lord declared Abraham to be righteous long before he offered Isaac, in fact, before Isaac had even been born. So it wasn't Abraham's work of being willing to sacrifice Isaac that made him righteous in God's estimation. He was already justified, and that was on the basis of his faith. So in view of those three clarifying points that James has given us, um, It's clear that when James posed that question, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He wasn't suggesting that the works were the cause of Abraham's justification or the basis for his justification. Rather, his works were the demonstration of the faith by which he had been justified. Works are the inevitable evidence of genuine faith through which justification has come. So in verse 24, where he states the, the conclusion that's to be drawn from the example of Abraham, he tells us how you see that a person is justified. How do you see that a person is justified? And the answer he gives is by works, 
and not by faith alone. That is, a, a person is seen to be justified when the works that stem from true saving faith are evident. A person is not seen to be justified by faith that's alone. If a person is saying they have faith, but there's no works following, that's, that's faith alone. Faith that doesn't produce such works, but is a mere profession, in word only. Take it or leave it, mere intellectual assent. So the message is, uh, as Calvin said, or, or Luther, or both, I've heard this uh, attributed to both of them, but it doesn't matter who said it, it's, it's, it's a good quote and it's true. Um, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. And that's James's point, isn't it? It's not questioning justification being by faith, but he is insisting that real justifying faith must lead to works. So James has forcefully made his point and could easily have ended this section, uh, I think, at that point. But he goes on to give a second example of authentic faith. And, and that's the example uh, of Rahab protecting the spies. You see that in verse 25, where he says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and, and sent them out by another way? Now, he doesn't mention her faith. Um, he doesn't mention her obedience. But it's clear, isn't it, that he, he presupposes those, those things because he's saying, and in the same way. So he's saying that in the same way as, as Abraham was justified by faith and his faith was demonstrated by what he did, that the same was true with, with Rahab. And I think it's much more explicit when you look at Hebrews 11 verse 3, where uh, in, in the list of examples of people of faith there, uh, Rahab is mentioned and the writer says, by faith Rahab the prostitute. So clearly she was active on the basis of her faith. Uh, and what? Well, she did not perish with those who were disobedient. So clearly she was obedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So Rahab is a, another example uh, in the same way as, as Abraham was. Now, Abraham was a, a very obvious example of, of faith demonstrating itself in works. But why did James go on to give this example of Rahab? And I suspect it was because of the marked contrast between them. You know, I said at the beginning, it's the patriarch and the prostitute. Well, they're, they're poles apart in, in, in the way in which we might naturally think of them, aren't they? There's a marked contrast between them. But you see, the point is that whether you are a revered patriarch of Israel or a Gentile woman who is also a prostitute, um, it doesn't make any difference in terms of the way to be made right with God. It's through the same sort of genuine faith that is demonstrated in works. James draws the section to a close by returning to his um, 
previous assertion that faith apart from works is dead, but he does so by using quite a powerful illustration in saying that for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that's quite an arresting, even grotesque image, isn't it? Because it's really saying that faith without works is like a corpse. You know, you picture a dead body with the, the flies buzzing around it. It's saying faith without works is, is like that. It's not only useless, it's actually disgusting. It's actually quite repugnant. So it's a, a very powerful image. So his conclusion is that faith apart from works is dead. And that's the, the message that he's persistently and emphatically hammered home throughout the passage. That The point is crystal clear. But it, it does beg a question. Uh, there's, if you like, an elephant in the room. And that is, what does he mean by works? Time and time again he's talked about works and works being the evidence of saving faith. But without knowing the answer to the question, uh, what, what are the works, uh, then simply stating that faith apart from works is dead is it's a bit academic, isn't it? You know, it's a, it sounds good, but, but so what? What, what? what does that mean? So before we close, let's think about the works that stem from true faith and show that faith to be genuine. So the, the works of faith. James doesn't really define the works that spring from true faith in this passage, but I think perhaps there are some, some pointers that hint at what he means by works. Um, I think we have a hint at the the outward practice of, of works there in verses 15 and 16. You remember he said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be, war- be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, primarily, I think that was being given as an example of of, of saying but not doing, to illustrate the fact that faith that's in word only is dead because it's unproductive. However, it does seem likely that that it's also an illustration of the sorts of deeds that should result from genuine faith. And I think we see something a bit similar in the example of Rahab, don't we? Because she she received the messengers, or according to Hebrew, she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. She put herself out even put herself in danger in order to do them good. So that's perhaps a hint at the sort of outward practice that these, uh, outward form that uh, these works take. And perhaps another point that comes from the example of Abraham, which, if you like, hints at the underlying principle of the works that should result from genuine faith. Again, James didn't spell it out, but a clear message from Abraham's readiness to sacrifice Isaac is surely his obedience. You know, he didn't just think, oh, it's a good idea for me to sacrifice my my son, the one that God promised, the one that all of his promises are going to be worked out through, but I think I'll sacrifice him. Clearly not. It's not something he would ever have dreamt of doing. And he he was only prepared to do it because God 
specifically told him to do it. He was prepared to do what God said. So clearly it's obedience that's at work in what Abraham did. Paul um, reinforces that connection between faith and obedience in Romans 1.5 where he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So, so the underlying principle of works that stem from faith is obedience. But then, next question is obedience to what? See, in the case of, of Abraham, God spoke directly to him and he did what God told him to do. God doesn't normally speak directly to us in that way, does he? So what are we to obey, to do works that stem from faith? And many would say, oh, the law of God. But how is the believer in Christ to understand that? I think perhaps a helpful passage is 1 Corinthians 9, 19-21, where Paul says, For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul was saying that the Jews were under the law of Moses. But that he, as a believer in Christ, was no longer under that law. He wasn't bound to obey that law. Believers have been freed from that law. They've been set at liberty. And then he continued in verse 21 by saying, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So now he's referring uh, to the Gentiles as those who are outside the law of Moses. They are outside of the law of Moses. And Paul was saying that, well, in a sense, I'm like them now. I'm no longer under the law of Moses. So uh, I used to be when I was a Jew, but I'm not anymore as a believer in Christ I am no longer under the law of Moses. I am outside of outside of the law of Moses. But he wasn't like a Gentile. How come? Well, you see, he says, uh, although he was uh, although he was uh, outside of of the law, he said he wasn't outside of the law of God. In the bracket says, it's got not being outside the law of God, that I might win those outside the law. So that could give the impression then that he's saying, well, I'm, I'm lawless. I'm, I'm, I'm outside of all law. But he wasn't lawless. He says, it didn't mean that he was outside of the law of God. And how come? Well, it was because he was under the law of Christ. And you see the point, believers in Christ 
are those who have genuine faith in Christ and they are under the law of Christ. Now James doesn't use that term, the law of Christ, but I do tend to think that's what he had in mind when he used terms like, uh, back in chapter 125, the perfect law, the law of liberty, uh, and in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 8, when he spoke of the royal law, and that royal law being that we love our neighbours as ourselves, and then in 2.12 he said the law of liberty again. So what is the law of Christ? Paul mentions something that fulfils the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2, where he says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. But perhaps it's best summed up in the words of Jesus himself in John 13.34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And put simply, the law of Christ is to love as Jesus loves. Obeying that commandment results in the works that James has said of the evidence of true saving faith. In Galatians 5.6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now you see, he doesn't merely say that what counts is faith, but what counts is faith working. Well, that's exactly what James has been saying, isn't it? But Paul takes it a step further by saying it's faith working through love. Works of faith are are love in action. That they're actions that show Christ-like care and compassion. So works that stem from faith and show it to be saving faith are the sorts of things that Al mentioned last week, Richard mentioned the week before. It's not adhering to a set of rules and regulations. It's not observing religious rites and ceremonies. It's not doing things that make us look moral in the eyes of of, of the world. It's practically caring for the sick and providing for the needy and feeding the hungry and befriending the lonely and accepting the outcasts. It's doing all those costly, loving things that Jesus did. And that is extremely challenging, isn't it? In view of what James has said about the faith that saves, if you told someone that you had that faith, would they conclude truth or lie? 